Welcome to Left, Right, and Unwanted, where three people from across the political spectrum discuss ideas and politics. I'm Lauren, and I'm the left. I'm Morgan, and I'm the right. And I'm Luke, and I'm the unwanted. In this and in life. Thank you for that clarification, Morgan. So for the inaugural podcast, we'll start out with a brief discussion of our perspectives on the term right and left before moving into the discussion on Frank Skinner's article, The State. Because this is the first podcast, this is going to be more generic about the right and the left. My first question for you is a left-right test. I did not make it up, but it is, I think, a decent one. Are some people better than others? Yes. No. So the key for deciphering the test is that people on the right will say yes, and people on the left will give a speech. But Lauren bucked that trend by just coming straight out and saying no, um, which is interesting. I agree with Morgan with yes. So my next question is for either of you, how would you define what makes someone left and what makes someone right? I guess to me in the most trying to break it down as a simplistic terms is the right side generally wants less government involvement and the left side typically wants more. When you think more government in your head, what are you picturing? I guess more government sounds strange. Um, I guess the government being involved, the federal government being involved in more aspects and like organizations and having more, um, just basically more say in everything as opposed to leaving it to either smaller governments such as like states or cities or private organizations. I definitely think it's true that today in discourse, the right, we use the language of limited and less government where the left is not. But I think if you look at issues, there are lots of issues where the right is for much bigger government than the left, whether it's immigration, drugs, prostitution. True. And I think a huge part of the base level understanding I have is, is probably how I was raised and how I was taught when first kind of learning about government and its roles. Lauren, how would you define them? Morgan, I think it's funny you say um, the idea of big government versus small government, because I agree. I think that's what is taught Mm -hmm. typically, and that's kind of how you learn it. And then you think to yourself, oh, which one do I want? And then you choose. But in practice, I would almost define it as a difference in prioritization. More often than not, when I talk to people on the right versus talking to people on the left, they simply care about different issues more Mm -hmm. and their beliefs about those issues lead them to a certain side. What would you think are priorities on the left and what do you think are priorities on the right? I guess going solely off of what I hear from people on both sides, the left in today's society prioritizes social issues and then the right prior, I guess, I, um, I almost want to say fiscal issues, but I'm not sure. I'm locked into that. But that's the first thing that comes to mind. So would you say the right then deprioritizes social issues such as abortion or gay marriage or transgender bathrooms? No, I guess I wouldn't. Not necessarily. No. It's interesting that you said that you see the difference as a difference in priorities, because that sounds a lot like what Jonathan Haidt talks about in his book, the Righteous Mind, which he attempts to explain why people disagree on topics of politics so much. And he has this theory called moral foundations theory. Jonathan Haidt's moral foundations theory has six different foundations of morality, and they're binary. So there's care, harm, fairness, proportionality, loyalty, in-group, authority, respect, sanctity, purity. And so the left puts more emphasis on care, harm, and fairness or proportionality, whereas the right puts um, roughly equal emphasis on all five or all six. And so because of this, this results in people talking past each other. The other interesting thing I think is that it's somewhat related to the big five personality theory, which is currently, as I understand it, the most well-accepted personality theory, which splits people's personality traits into openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. And people that are more conscientious, for example, are tend to be, have right-leaning political beliefs and people that have score higher on openness to experience tend to have more left-leaning beliefs. 
So it's interesting that our, our tendency to go left or right may be embedded in our personalities. Luke, how would you define left and right? I think the best explanation of right and left I have heard is from Thomas Sowell, who wrote a book called The Conflict of Visions, where he describes that there's two visions of humanity and human nature. The left version, which is called the unconstrained vision, and the right version, which is called the constrained vision. So the left primarily relies heavily on the belief that human nature is essentially good, and they distrust decentralized processes, are impatient with large institutions, and systemic processes that constrain human behavior, because they think there's an ideal solution to a problem, compromise is not acceptable. And then people on the right have a constrained view of human nature where humans are very limited, we can't be better than what we are, and so we need to make sure that humans are constrained in their actions and the choices that they can have. Much more of um, an educated sounding explanation than Yeah, well, part of it was (laughs) off of the Wikipedia page, so. Very nice. And like in the book I previously mentioned, The Righteous Mind, Jonathan Haidt does reference Thomas Sowell quite a bit in it. There's some connection between those two visions of humanity and politics. The German sociologist Max Weber famously defined the state as a human community that successfully claims the monopoly of the legitimate use of physical force within a given territory. But where did this concept come from, and why do we use the term state to describe it? These are the questions that Quentin Skinner seeks to answer in his essay entitled The State. Quentin Skinner is a British intellectual historian regarded as one of the founders of the Cambridge School of the History of Political Thought. One of the defining features of the Cambridge School is its emphasis on a text's historical context in an attempt to avoid anachronistic interpretations of a text due to contemporary changes in the understanding of the ideas contained within the text. Skinner specifically focuses on reading works of political theory as parts of a broader dialogue occurring within the intellectual community. Rather than reading classic works on their own, they should be viewed as responses to other works. When performing this analysis, it is important not to neglect writers who are less well-known now, but who would have been viewed as important at the time of the writing. Finally, as works of political theory are commonly written in an attempt to influence the then-current geopolitical climate, interpreting political writings is impossible without an in-depth understanding of the political circumstances the writer existed within. So Skinner starts off by talking about Hobbes and how Hobbes described his first political writing as that of undertaking a more curious search into the rights of states and duties of subjects. And Skinner takes from this that since that time, the idea that the confrontation between individuals and states furnishes the central topic of political theory has come to be almost universally accepted. And I think that's exactly right. When we talk about politics, we talk about what's the relationship between individuals and states. Well, I think that connects back to almost what we just talked about in our opening segment. So the idea when people talk about big or small government, really what they're talking about is how much they'd like to run into the government in their daily life. So I agree. I think he hit it on the head. It's about the, yeah, the relationship between, I guess, the governing and the governed. My next takeaway was the part where Quentin Skinner is talking about Hobbes and how Hobbes' suggestion that the duties of subjects are owed to the state rather than the person of a ruler as a new and contentious statement, I think that's not new or contentious anymore. I think that's the dominant view that people have. And then he he also says Hobbes' implied assumption is also when he talks about that subjects owe duty to the state, that implies that we owe our duties to one state, one entity, rather than multiple jurisdictional authorities, local as well as national, ecclesiastical as well as civil. So we owe duty to one entity, not a person, an entity called the state. And, and what Hobbes is really getting at here and what Skinner's recognizing is the start of what's known as Westphalian sovereignty, which grows out of the Peace of Westphalia in around 1642, which in school is really presented as this new thing that came out of nowhere. And Quentin Skinner is gonna go on and in this article and show the growth of this idea that it didn't just spring out of nowhere fully formed. But this is really a a sharp break from the feudalism of the Middle Ages, where loyalty and things like that are talked about in terms of fealty to your liege lord who you swore a personal relationship to a person rather than a state entity. I mean, he also, and you were saying it's really one entity instead of many, 
he also denotes that it goes to the highest form of authority. And I think today when people speak about the state, this has carried through and that's what is meant. If you hear someone say this state, it means this large high authority. It's, it's not really a term we have to define anymore. Even teaching in school, it's not something really we go over definition wise. And it's interesting to me to see how the definition evolved before we got to the point where we are now. We don't use the term the state as much in the US, I think because we have 50 states. And so it's somewhat confusing. I think that's, you hear it more in English, you know, television or anything like that. They'll talk about the state. We usually just say government, the government. It's rare to hear the term the state used to refer to the entity with the monopoly on legitimate violence is the most commonly accepted definition has it. I think that the conclusion that the duties of subjects are owed to the state rather than the person of a ruler is somewhat out there because I think that there, we still cling to the idea of government being personal and it being personified by people, whether it's Obama being portrayed by the media as sort of messianic or the extreme loyalty to Trump that you see on the right, um, the depiction of Joe Biden as Uncle Joe, there's this real want and need by people to personify the state into a person that they can look at. Loyalty is also, I think, now implied, at least in our country in the U.S. So back to what you said about the concept of swearing fealty to a lord or whoever was in charge of your area, that would change if the ruler changed. And today, it's something I think we take for granted for everyone unless someone states they feel otherwise. So it's really almost implied state and then implied loyalty to that state. Yeah, and that actually reminds me of when I was working at the courthouse, I attended a naturalization ceremony on my first day. And one of the aspects of a naturalization ceremony is the new citizens say an oath of allegiance to the United States government. And they have to renounce any obedience to other governments, which is a perspective that as we're all natural born citizens, we don't really have because we've never explicitly sworn allegiance to the United States government like naturalized citizens have. We did always have the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag in our school. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, that, that's true. That so get those children in every day. I could probably say it now. I mean, I said it almost every day for... I'm sure you could. 12 years or something. So maybe not as technically binding as the oath that you make when you become a citizen, but we did pledge allegiance a lot as children. But even that is allegiance to the flag. It's not, I pledge allegiance to Joe Biden or to Donald Trump. It's always true. the flag. I mean, now the it's- flag so as a representation of the American government and the country. Yeah, the flag is mm -hmm. a symbol. It was actually written to sell flags. The pledge Not surprising. By a socialist, Bellamy, who wanted to, well, I, we, we don't need to get into that. That'll take us down a rabbit trail. That, that's all I have in, in section one, where he's just set, setting up the, or the aim of the article. And he closes the first section by saying that his aim is to sketch both of the historical circumstances out of which the concept of the state arose and which the words state arose. Why do we use the word state to describe the state? Moving on to section two is a long history on the etymology of the word state and the various words like estat and stato that were used. Did anybody find any of these examples particularly interesting? Yes, I'm more in general thought that the idea of having or it being necessary to define the word state and where it came from is very interesting because like you said, it's not a term we in, in the United States use a lot to describe our government. And so looking at kind of the history of how it came about in Europe mostly was just in general an interesting thing to think about and learn about. It looks like the first reference that he cites is Justinian's Digest, which talks about how we need to consider the status of such persons before we consider anyone else. And so status meant the legal standing of men and the status of the rulers was above everyone else. Uh, Justinian mm -hmm. was a Byzantine emperor, so his status would have been quite high. And I imagine if you have a higher status, you really want to define that you have a higher status than everybody else. I think it's interesting that, and I'm 
searching through here trying to find where, but along with status, it also connects to wealth directly. I can't find the exact spot, but it, he connects it to the monarchy and then to wealth. And then it's on 92. Then he ends up, it kind of the next iteration of state is when it refers to state or condition. So then it goes from wealth and what is owned to really how a community is doing or the status of an area. So I thought there were at least two, maybe three distinct meanings. Right. So there's the, he talks about how there's the suggestion that stateliness belongs to kings and it was connected with displays, displays of your sovereignty. So you'd have these giant pomp and circumstance parades to show off the king's status, which was tied up with his legitimacy. He must be king. He must be great because look at all these things he can do. Look at all this gold he has. But yes, and, and as you mentioned, it then switches to status being used to refer to the state of the realm. You know, how is the country doing? And that was that was used in both France and England in the 14th century at the at the earliest. And then that was tied between how well the king was ruling. So, I mean, if you had a good king, then the country was blessed and the status of the realm was blessed. So, again, you have a connection between status and the king in a personal capacity. And then how, you know, that's the symbol to, yeah, the rest of the world and all of the other communities and groups out there. Look how great our king is. So that shows how well our country is doing. These sort of state of the realms were used in France and England and in Northern Europe. And he then goes and discusses the Italian city-states who are concerned with the status civitatum. I don't speak Latin, so I have no idea if that's anywhere close to being right. But Does anybody which, speak Latin? I guess only dead people. The Catholic well. Church, I'm sure there's a couple of them speak it. <laughs> Not conversationally, but... So yeah, the status civitatum is the state or condition of the cities, which as opposed to realms, obviously city-states are much more circumscribed in size, but a similar concept. I guess mm-hmm. I also thought when it kind of switches to discussing the Italian city-state, there's a quote where it's discussed the idea of maintaining their cities in a good, happy, or prosperous state. Grammatically, you could even see it shifting from the concrete of the king is the state. So something you can see, it's tangible, it's there, to more of an abstract, what makes a good state, what makes a bad state. As it shifts, when he discusses it in these different places, it's getting less and less concrete. To piggyback on that, as it goes to being sort of a, an abstract idea rather than a concrete person, there comes in this idea of the state being concerned with the common good, the sort of Aristotelian, Thomistic idea of the common good as being the goal of the state, which is taken up by other Italian Catholic philosophers around the time of Aquinas, where the judge or the magistrate has charge of the common good, which is justice, is a quote from Aquinas. I don't know what you guys think about the, the concept of the common good. I think it's creepy because who defines the common good? And what what is the... It just reminds me of that scene in Hot Fuzz where the townspeople keep talking about the greater good. The greater good. It's very, which, and they get into specifically utopia later, but it, I mean, it's very utopian sounding and it, yeah, it's just all this, eventually it's going to be this perfect, wonderful society and everybody's going to be happy and everything will be great looks more at the idea of a whole society and not necessarily the individuals. I I think that's exactly the danger is that it runs over the individuals. If there's some individuals standing in the way of the common good, then, you know, we'll just get rid of them, whether they're kulaks Mm -hmm. or Jews, you know, we can just, nah, they don't matter because they're standing in the way of the common good. And I I find that a very, very creepy view of society. Very the giver-esque. I haven't read The Giver. I, you haven't read, wait, Lauren, have you read The Giver? Yes. Okay. You're, you're nodding very excitedly, so you must. Yes. You both must have liked it. Luke, I'll bring you a copy. <laughs> I have one. But no, Morgan, completely. I mean, it, it's a Luke, good you, you should read it. It's it's a good book, and it's it'll be a fast read for you. Did The Giver plant the giving tree? Mm-mm. Are they related? <laughs> is this a series? Um, there is but, a series, actually, but it's not that. It's exactly what you said, you know, as most futuristic, I'm doing air quotes, but I don't know what's going on with my lighting. It's very light in my room now and it's just all gone. 
everybody, if you were different, if you stood out, if you started thinking more than you were supposed to, um, the government would send you off. So you didn't bother everybody else with your weird individualistic thinking. So you'd be released. Yes. They called it. Oh, a nice, very nice euphemism (laughs) right there. (laughs) And I believe also, I don't remember the age, but once you got old enough, you were also released, right? I think right. there's an age limit. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the the main character starts to think individually, and that's what drives the plot of the book. I mean, it's exactly what you were saying, Luke, about individuals who are getting in the way of the common, quote, good. You had to get rid of them to have a good, healthy society. little sidetrack there. Good book. So I guess going back to common good... And it's, I agree. I think there's some serious problems with what people mean when they say that. If you look at it at the very most basic way it could be used, I suppose in this case, you could define it as prosperity at this time, like looking to see if you're working for the common good is the state prospering, is everything doing better. But I guess if that's what you want to say, you might as well just say prosperity then. So maybe it's a little too naive to assume people would mean it that way instead of as really whatever the perfect society is. Yeah. And I mean, just good by itself is a very broad term. It can be a very idealized term because yeah, you, you hear good and think good. I think in general, the idea of a common good is yeah, creepy and idealized and we're all too different. And without getting into too much spoilers, there is, I think it's state simplification is an article coming up, which talks about Mm -hmm. the totalitarian possibilities introduced by utopian visions. And this growing shift in the view of the state is very connected with the Renaissance because it starts in Italy and then it's moved by the Erasmian humanists into Northern Europe in the 16th century. And Erasmus himself talks about the optimist status and that view of the state, which is essentially plagiarized from the Italian philosophers. We keep throwing around the words yeah, utopia, which, and then this leads to, not nail glad. And we keep throwing around the, the words utopia and it's connected to Thomas More's book, Utopia, who was writing at this time and was influenced by the Renaissance. So it's somewhat appropriate that that's the adjective we keep using. We're now gonna move into part three where Skinner's gonna to try to take the usages and how they lead into the modern concept of the state. Typically, if you're in government 101 or a high school government class, when they're talking about developments in political thought, you're gonna go from feudalism to the divine right of kings to the modern state. And Skinner says that is not the right way to do it. The focus on the divine right of kings is a distraction. What we really want to focus on is rather than kings, focus on the magistrates, the lawgivers in these societies. The advice books for these magistrates is where the written record is. There would be these magistrates primarily in city-states, like in Italy, and also in some cities throughout Europe, that where the magistrate was the chief lawgiver, and people would write advice texts for these magistrates. These advice books then develop into a genre and literature known as mirrors for princes, of which the most famous example is Machiavelli's The Prince. Although Machiavelli's The Prince is actually an outlier in mirror for princes literature. So in 12th century Italy, there were a lot of city-states, self-governing republics, and the mirror for princes literature focused on two things, achieving honor and glory, along with the happiness of your subjects, and how to hold on to power. Primary themes in these were you held on to power by being able to fulfill the needs of government and keep one's hold hold over the existing power structure. And the existing power, power structure now denotes the institutions of government and their means of control over the populace rather than individuals, which is an important development. And status is now being used to refer to these aspects, the character of the existing regime, and importantly, it's territories. There's now a focus on borders being important to states, which is something that is a more modern concept. Borders as a, are a more modern concept. Typically in the past, you would have frontiers and marches where the power of the, of the government slowly petered out into the you know, wasteland beyond rather there being these real strict, rigid borders that we associate with states today. I think that the borders playing a bigger role, I mean, just in general, as as the world shrinks, so to speak, with, you know, which that's obviously jumping forward a lot into, into modern day, but with how much easier it is now to access other parts of the world and other areas, 
there, there aren't really any areas where it can just kind of peter out. There is less undeveloped land in the world today now too. There's less wasteland. We can bring more areas that primarily were impossible to live in and we can live in them now because of modern technology, water pipelines, air conditioning, and, and we have more population too. So I think that mm-hmm. may be another reason why that has changed. I was just going to add as kind of evidence for the idea of borders becoming important. And these are just quotes from what Skinner said. So the idea of if you're levying taxes from areas under your command, you need to achieve this as a governor, low stato, like of the state, which I only brought it up because I think it reinforced what you were saying about more of a defined area, because if you're taxing something, it needs to be under your control. It can't just be a nebulous border. So there needs to be a larger structure. And then Machiavelli in The Prince, one of the reasons it's a little bit of an outlier is he distinguishes between the institutions of power and the people who hold those institutions of power, which is the start of this fissure that we see develop between the people and the power itself. So between the king holding power in his person and the king holding power through the state. If you talk to someone who's really into defining terms and these sort of civic terms, There's a distinction between government and state that we don't really use in America as much as they use over in Britain, whereas the government is a temporary, it's it's who is currently in power. And you see this a lot in parliamentary systems where they will form a government or they will form a coalition government, which is transitory and does not last continuously like the state does. So the British state, you know, has been the same for hundreds and hundreds of years, but the British government is constantly changing with each new election. And that's a distinction that we lose in America with our terminology, but is one that Machiavelli is making. There's the people that hold power, and then there's the power that they wield, the institutions of power. Are we at the state then? Has Machiavelli brought us to the modern conception of the state? Skinner says no. Skinner is responding to some academics who claim that we're dealing with the modern conception of the state at the point of Machiavelli. And Skinner is arguing that Machiavelli still sees the powers of government as personal in nature, where the king or the prince embodies the institutions in sort of this, I am the state, I am the Senate method. But I did like the idea of going back into the advice for magistrates. That's just something I wouldn't have considered as, I guess, a place to find evidence for state. But it makes a lot of sense. And I did think it was interesting to read. I think that goes to that sort of Cambridge School of History political thought where you look at all the documents and you look at the ones that were in use at the time and where dialogue was happening to see how these ideas are developing. It's a way of doing things that I obviously have just no experience with because any type, I mean, I didn't write basically any papers in school. Research is in engineering and math and science is a very different type of research than this. So Skinner is talking about how these humanist Renaissance ideas about the state have now penetrated into Northern Europe, but the belief the powers of government should be personal in nature isn't going away anytime soon. It's interesting that he points to this belief as being one of the bases for the quarrels between kings and parliaments over the issue of taxation in the course of the the 16th century, most famous of which was would lead to the English Civil War, the execution of King Charles. And the other interesting thing about this is that the parliament is actually making the power as personal argument, because they're saying kings should be able to live of their own personal revenues and enforce their role within the state under their own personal revenues. So you'd think that the kings would be the ones making the personal argument, you know, sort of a divine right argument, but it's actually the parliament's making that. It's, well, and then the, just above that, it's the discussion of low stato is equivalent to il suo stato, which I guess taking the Latin out of it means that you, the king or the prince, are equivalent to your kingdom. So the case that kings should be able to then live off the kingdom with taxation isn't our concept of modern state with it, especially, and I'm not that we have a king, but in our country, we don't think of our government as living off of us. Well, some of us don't. Not in that way. <laughs> you, I guess you could look at it, you know, our taxes all go to towards the government and 
you know, where do government employees' salaries come from type of thing. But I know we don't, at least I don't think of it as direct as, it just sounds like a very almost medieval concept, you know, everybody gives all of their stuff to their Lord and then the Lord of the land distributes. I'm making a lot of hand gestures right now. Um, distributes it and kind of helps provide for everybody. Almost a medieval concept. At this point, Skinner is going to shift his analysis from kings and kingdoms to republics, which is another form of government that is common throughout the Middle Ages, particularly in Italy. A lot of the city-states were republics, drawing off of the example of the First Republic of Rome. And the republics of Rome, all republics of Italy, all shared this idea that in order to obtain the optimist status, we have to have a self-governing form of republican regime. And this is very important to them for various reasons. The first is that all power is liable to corrupt, which sounds like one of my favorite quotes by Lord Acton. Pretty much everyone knows the shorter form, which is... Absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Yes, yeah, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. There's It's actually part of a much longer quote, which I like. It, it goes, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. I have heard that whole quote before. And and yeah, when I was reading this section, that's definitely what, what came to mind. And yeah, the idea of how you can trust that governmental authority to judge and rule fairly and correctly. Yeah, and later on in that quote, Lord Acton goes, there is no worse heresy than that the office sanctifies the holder of it. That is the point at which the negation of Catholicism and the negation of liberalism meet and the end learns to justify the means. And he's talking, he's responding to someone who says that we have to judge popes and kings differently, use a different standard. And he's saying, yeah, we have to use an even higher standard on them mm-hmm. because they have so much power. And you hear this a lot. Well, I don't respect the man, but you have to respect the office. And that's clearly something that Lord Acton does not think. He thinks, no, there's no such respecting the office. Why would you, that gives them more power. So they're even more likely to be corrupt. The idea of, yeah, you have to earn respect. You shouldn't just get it because you're in a position, in a position of authority. I don't think that's often taught. I think that's a conclusion people reach independently. But as you go through life, you encounter institutions that you are taught to respect because of what they are. So mm-hmm. like as when you're a kid, any adult you come in contact with, why do you respect them? Why do you say yes, sir, yes, ma'am? Because they're older than you. Why do you respect local authorities in your community? Because that's who they are. So it's almost getting at like the office equate to the morality of the holder. And I think sometimes people get the idea that since we we hold elections, we elect our officials, it's the idea that, oh, I picked them. I wouldn't pick an immoral choice. Therefore, this person is everything I want them to be, and they deserve my respect. But I think we see that in more than just government, like respecting offices. Yes. For and sure. This is actually something about modern our current society that I'm very excited about. And that is that people are losing respect for these for these positions. Um, I think Donald Trump was absolutely great in getting people to not automatically respect the president just because he's the president. And another area where I'm super excited that people are losing respect is the corporate press. I think before, if you had professor at an Ivy League school or New York Times journalist before your name, people would believe what you said. And people don't do that anymore, which is, I, I think, I think very positive. Some people might disagree that I, I see this all the time. Oh, people's faith in institutions is breaking down. This is horrible. And I think it's, I think it's, it's great. not a, if it continues, it can lead to growth and changes that, I mean, it could be worse, but it, yeah, it could, I don't know. It, it was very, it's very stagnant. If you just always, always believe in and always trust an institution because it's an institution or because it's been around for a long time. Especially an institution like the corporate press, which has been lying us into war since the yellow papers of the Spanish-American War. My concern is that I, I see the breakdown too, and I think there could be good that can come from it, but I think the breakdown is very conditional. And it really just depends on who you talk to and which 
authorities, which institutions they're losing faith in, because it's not, I don't see it as much where people question one and then, oh, I need to question everything. I need to look more critically at my own beliefs. I think it's more case by case basis. So I don't know that I believe it's going to happen on a quick or a large scale. I can see that too. Yeah. It's, it's nice to think that every institution will be questioned equally, but it probably won't happen. And I think piggybacking off of what Lauren was saying, you, which institutions you're leaving, losing faith in is very much dependent on which political team hat you're wearing at the time. When George Bush was in power, people on the left you know, said it's patriotic to question authority and people on the right screamed, respect the office, and then it flipped and then it flipped and it's going to flip mm-hmm. again. It, it absolutely is. I do agree. I think it's becoming more widespread and more of the norm. But I also think until we change at the foundational level, because I would argue right now, people are still taught the idea of respecting authority. So it's still something that if you're going to think for yourself and look objectively at your leaders, you almost have to undo something you were taught that you needed to really just exist in a social setting. And I don't really have an idea for how to do that, but people are still starting from scratch, getting to that conclusion on their own instead of having it be presented as an option. At the risk of getting too far down this already very deep rabbit hole we've been digging, <laughs> uh, I think there's I, I think there's also a difference between claimed authority and legitimate authority. So I don't have a problem with respecting legitimate authority, but I think a lot of what people claim to be authority or people think is authority is actually not the case. And just like you know, whether you're an elitist or a populist, I don't have a problem with elites, but I think the current people we see as elites are very unimpressive, very unintelligent. They are not the, I mean, even the elites that I don't like 50 years ago could at least write well and express themselves very eloquently. And if, I mean, a great thing for this is Twitter. If you just look at all these people who, you know, Harvard professor of whatever, you look at his Twitter, you know, this guy's a moron. Twitter has really broken down a lot of people's faith in elites. Back to Republican mm. Italy. Um, <laughs> And another reason that uh, going back to why republicanism is so important to the people in republics is that the people in power will tend to promote their own interest. If you have a group of people from the outside who are ruling over you, they will push their interest on you. Whereas if you're in a republic where the authority is derived from the citizens, the people in that area, then what they'll do is good for the citizens is the thinking behind republicanism, uh, small r republicanism is that leave if if we make up the state then the state will pursue our common good rather than the common good of the elites or the invading army or whoever externally is in power well which i think already is getting closer and closer to the modern state because that type of thinking starts to transfer the power to something that transcends the individual it's creating a system almost to create the definition of modern state by trying to create safeguards on what a ruler can and can't or should and shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. And not, yeah, not treating them in the um, older idea of a ruler, you know, outside of the, whatever that group decides and wants to enforce. And um, this also goes into why independence and autonomy are so important and why these Italian city-state republics defended their sovereignty against uh, external influence in, in this historical episode, it would have been the Holy Roman Empire trying to make them subject to the empire. It's important, not just because independence is nice to have, it's nice to be independent. It's because independence is what guarantees the state is promoting the common good rather than the good of some outside force. And because this independence and liberty is pursuing the common good, those cities are going to develop faster. So you get this equation between liberty and prosperity and growth in the city. I mean, liberty makes cities great, which is going to be their rallying cry. The other interesting part is we start to get this rivalry between church and state because there is the, the demand, as Skinner puts it, the demand for libertas is also directed against all potential rivals as sources of coercive jurisdiction within the cities. The church at this time is the most powerful entity outside of the state, and in some areas is more powerful than the state. And so if or the Catholic church, by its definition, is universal and not local, it can then resist the attempts of the local government to pursue the common good of the people there, is the argument of these Republican theorists. 
this is something side note that I would love to do more of. I think it'd be interesting to find something specifically about these two power. I don't know. Personally, that's something I would like to look at. I think it'd be interesting to, yeah, almost compare them because technically now, you know, it's church and state are separate, but I mean, the United States is still a very Christian, um, very, very Christian and Christian run country. We say that, but in the United States for a long time, the church has not exercised temporal authority and you do not get convicted by the church. You do not get put in jail by the church. You do not, for the most part, there's a a few exceptions. You don't sue someone in the church. It's all this powers exercised outside of the church. And yet people have religious beliefs that influence how they use the secular temporal power, but the church itself is not does not have an army, does not have a police. And that was something that used to be the case. I mean, the church used to have all kinds of power that we now view as the province of the state. And Marsilius of Padua is one of the first people to argue in 1324 that all coercive power is secular by by definition, and the church has no right to exercise civil jurisdiction at all, which sounds very mainstream today, was very radical back then. Especially in Italy. I guess the which is the last place on earth where the church still can uh, exercise <laughs> um, civil jurisdiction. Yeah, very limited area. I did going along down with this. I thought the idea where we're shifting, even in matters of the church, where the community retains the ultimate sovereign authority. I was going to say that that relates back to what you said earlier, where you started talking about checks and balances. And by putting conditions, these conditions on the power that people can exercise, we start to associate legitimate government with not the men themselves, but with the institutions. So because the judge can only do X, Y, and Z, the power now rests in the rules that give the judge the power to do X, Y, and Z, and not in the judge as a person to do whatever he wants anymore. I think Skinner's words, he calls them an agent of justice now, as opposed to being judge, jury, and execution. At this point, Skinner is starting to see see that this distinction between the apparatus of government, the institutions, and between the people that actually hold them is starting to come up with more and more writers. He points to Venetian writers, Contarini, I don't know if that's how you say it, Francisco Patrizzi. There's that Giovanni guy he mentions a lot too. Gucciardini's. Gucciardini's. Discourse. Right? I think that's Alamano, it. Alamano the only other note I had for four is this is where right, right at the tail end of four is where he also, and we already covered this a little bit earlier, discusses the idea of citizenship. So this is where Skinner starts to bring in being dutiful toward the state itself. And we're seeing people's thinking shift toward allegiance to the state versus allegiance to whoever's in power. That's just, that's where he starts to make that distinction. And he uses, he talks about it in Venice, I Mm -hmm. think specifically. And specifically he talks about enfranchising additional citizens. So this is naturalizing citizens, which we still see, like I mentioned earlier, where it's the naturalized citizens that have to swear the oath to be dutiful toward the state. And this is not a new concept. This goes back quite a ways. One last thing is that we, when these concepts, especially of the Republic, where the power rests in the people who then have institutions of power that carry out the common good, this is translated, this concept is translated as commonwealth. And that is a phrase that's still used today, um, somewhat archaically to refer to certain modes of government jurisdiction and in certain ways you can set it up. There's like four states that are referred to as commonwealths in their constitution. We start to now get into concepts and words and usages that we recognize today. I did the only along with the commonwealth and I looked up the etymology myself because I was interested, not because I thought we really needed to, but it really the def, it goes back to a realm established for the common good that's when it came into usage and people started using it to mean something that was founded under that pretense. When Charles I was executed and who's the guy that killed all the Irish people took over Cromwell. Wasn't it called the Commonwealth? Yep. 
So moving on to section five, now that we have the Republican theorists input, are we now at the, at the modern conception of the state? Are we? I'll put on my Lee Corso headgear and say, not so fast, my friend. Um, <laughs> we still are not to the, the modern state. Starting to get to talking about it as a contract. We distinguish the state's authority from that of the rulers or the magistrates. So that's a concept that we have now from the Republican theorists and for also in Machiavelli. But we also distinguish the state's authority from that of the whole society or the community, which is not the case at this time with the, I mean, the most famous proponent of this is going to be John Locke, who talks about the social contract. The Republican theorists still see the state as intertwined with society or community. But th this concept that the sovereignty rests in the people is the language of the founding of America. Primarily in the Constitution, when it talks about we the people, the, the idea that the government is not sovereign, the people is sovereign, is a concept that is not around today. We have a lot, there's a lot of talk about sovereignty. The state claims sovereignty, whether it's sovereign immunity, which is in the news with you know the qualified immunity claimed by um, police officers. This idea of sovereignty resting in the people as a whole and not in the government and the government just being an agent of the people, but it is a concept that is not mainstream today. I think probably, unfortunately. Well, and I think in the founding, a lot of it probably came from a lot of the problems that were, they didn't like the way being ruled by a monarchy was, especially with being so far away, it, they kind of went in the very opposite direction. And, and there's some thinkers who are okay, who are trying to reconcile this concept of sovereignty being rested in the people with still having a monarch. And chief among them is John Locke, John Locke who thinks that if what the monarch is doing, if he can reflect the sentiments of the people, then it's okay to have a monarch. He goes so far as to say it could be preferred if it also allowed for personal liberty. So it's almost like, at least I read it as though he's imagining a monarchy, but you're guaranteed the freedom to do as you will in it. So I thought he almost, I mean, at that point, what powers does the monarchy have if you maintain individual liberties? It's very idealistic. I think maybe it's this enlightenment, enlightened monarch idea where the monarch is, is so wise that he reflects the will of the people in a way that some theorists have tried to see it. May also be that John Locke is writing in a country where there's a monarchy, so he can't just come out and say, yeah, there's no monarch. <laughs> it's, it's always yeah. tough. You always have to read, I mean, again, this goes back to the Cambridge thought where you read people in the context of their time and place of writing. So even though John Locke's, the, John Locke's thought may lead to no monarchy, he can't come out and say it. Mm -hmm. Good point. Try and also, the other thing about John Locke when he talks about personal liberties is he actually wrote one of the governing charters for one of the colonies, and it was very restrictive. It was not a libertarian document by any stretch of the imagination. I probably should have pulled that up before here. The, was it Carolina? It is Carolina. He drafted the Fundamental Constitutions of Carolina which established a feudal aristocracy and gave masters absolute power over their slaves, according to the Wikipedia summary. It's questionable how, how compatible this is with his more classical liberal views, although it did have some more what would be viewed as progressive measures like election by secret ballots. It also says here he was a paid secretary when he wrote it for the authorship. So it doesn't look to me like he was designing a colony. I mean, this seems to suggest maybe he just took down what they wanted and it wasn't really written under his own design. It looks yeah. like there's some it looks like there's some controversy among historians as to size of Locke's involvement in in these constitutions. It does say here in it elections were to be held by secret ballot, which was at this time not common practice in England and laws were to expire automatically after 100 years. That I think is somewhat progressive. Does secret ballot have random capitalizations and maybe E at the end of secret? It does um, not. Oh, okay. Those uh, S's that look like F's. Um, <laughs> jumping back to Skinner's article, there's also a group in France called the Monarchomachs who are content to assume that the body of the Commonwealth still has a monarchical head. So this isn't just a thought that Locke has. It's also in France. 
Well, it says a variety of different, con there's no reason to doubt that a variety of different constitutional forms may be equally capable of promoting the common good. So really it's the belief that as long as you're working toward this mysterious common good, you could make a case for more than one form of government achieving that. So I didn't view it as necessarily always preferring monarchy, but it doesn't completely oust it as something we don't like that isn't going to help the common good. I felt like it kind of just legitimized it alongside a republic. Writing around the same time as Locke, who sees political power as the social contract where the people sort of hire an agent, as it were, as it were to be the government, and then if the agent's not doing his job right, they can take it back. Hobbes comes along and says, no, the sovereign must bind the people. And this is an absolute transfer or a, an alienation of the power. So rather than hiring an agent, it's like you're selling your right to govern yourselves. And people cannot reclaim the powers of government. Right. Like once you give it over, it's not merely safeguarded. It's it's a done deal. You can't and, go back and take your power when you want it. And the sovereign isn't working for you. No, you gave someone the ability to govern you. And with that, Skinner concludes, we have now reached a single and supreme sovereign whose power is different from the people who instituted it. We are now at the modern conception of the state. Now that we've really reached the modern state, the powers of a ruler are not personal powers. So Power has been transferred, but we're losing the idea of personal power. It's now an entity, which means that now we have the idea of an impersonal authority. The state is now absolute in power, but this is not the divine right of kings. This is not a personal power. Right. So moving on to part six, we now have the modern idea of the state, which is absolutist and secular. It is different from the people. It is its own outside entity. And there is some pushback against this concept by various thinkers. The first are reactionaries who want to restore the divine right of kings and monarchs. Another group of people are various religious groups who don't like the idea of the state being purely secular and the church being shut out of all civil authority. And then another uh, group, which is maybe the most interesting to talk about, which is the Marxists, who think that the state is not separate from the people. It's separate from some of the people, but it's an agent of the ruling class. That I see potentially making a case for today. Maybe not a pure form of that definition, but looking at our modern state and looking at even clusters of families or multiple individuals within a family that have held power, I can follow that line of logic. At the, risk of, at the risk of putting my MAGA hat on, this is another thing that I actually really like about Trump is he smashed two political families in less than a year. He stopped the Bushes and he stopped the Clintons. He kept Jeb Bush from getting the nomination and he beat Hillary Clinton in the election. Two families that I have nothing but disdain for. Well, and you look at you know, the leaders in America and you look at, you know, leaders in the UK and stuff and they, I forget the numbers, but like a very large percentage of prime ministers in the UK have all gone to the same school. And yes, you, you could theoretically go to, you know, Oxford or Cambridge or whatever and, and not be from a wealthy family, but it's still thought of as a, you know, a wealthy upper-class school. Um, and, you know, we have the Ivy Leagues in America that all, um, you know, a lot of politicians and stuff want to go to and come from. And you can look at, you know, they have the education that we want leaders to have, but it is very much picking from an upper class group of people. One, one, one viewpoint that may be different is maybe it's saying that at least nominally have elections in the United States and the people in government get their power through elections. It's actually not the case. Most government power is wielded now by bureaucrats in agencies who are appointed or hired and not elected. But there's still this idea out there that, that we elect the leaders. And so you could make the argument that the reason people are successful in life is because they are personally very talented. And personally, very, t very talented people are successful in business, and they are also successful in politics. So it's not so much the ruling class controlling government, more as just be the ruling class being made up of competent people and hyper-competent people and government made up of hyper-competent people. The I don't American think that, dream. I don't think that's, I think that's probably not the case. 
and I see this now, you, to get into power, you have to get the electorate to vote for you. But then once you're in power, like for the president's probably the easiest example of this. You have to get the people to like you to get into power. So you make all these promises. And then once you're in power to get things done, you have to work with the entrenched power elite who don't care about your promises. And one example of this that I saw was foreign policy. So Trump got up on stage in South Carolina in a military heavy, very red state, very military heavy area. There's a lot of bases there. And he says, Bush light us into the Iraq war. And the crowd cheers. And which is just shocking from, you know, eight, four, six, eight years ago to hear who eventually become the Republican nominee, talk about how Bush led us into wars. Why are we spending all this money in the Middle East? We need to bring the troops home. And then he gets in power and he accomplishes none of it. Um, he there, There's reports about how senators and the military brass were deceiving Trump about the number of uh, military in Syria to try to keep the military there so Trump can bring them home. And whether it was... The various obstacles he faced in foreign policy, there was a concerted effort to keep Donald Trump from implementing his policy. And that is from the power elite. So I think there's definitely a divorce between the elected officials who don't really control that much and the unelected. I'll use the term deep state. I like the deep state or I don't like the deep state, but I like the term. I think it's a useful term. Um, Don't take that out. Keep that one in. No, I mean, there's definitely, there's definitely career bureaucrats, um, military industrial lobbyists, Pentagon officials who are not elected in any way, get their power and step place through connections and promote their own interests. I guess I have a couple of follow-up thoughts. Number one, I think there's a chance in discussing Trump, you're giving him too much intellectual credit where I'm not sure, <laughs> to be completely honest, um, I That's... think I think calling it his policies or and I'm not sure all of his actions are for a purpose. Well, is maybe how I would I I agree. I think it's interesting, and I think looking at people's reactions is interesting. I'm not sure that something he's doing consciously, because I'm not sure he can. So there's that. But the other comment I had is I guess. Um, the idea that, I mean, essentially I agree with you. I think we definitely do have a ruling class and there is a bit of a separation in once you get an office, realistically, what you're going to be able to accomplish. Um, when you said the idea of like a career politician, that, I guess that is interesting to me because I feel like that almost then combines them. Like if you're a career politician, you more, not always, but more often than not, you come from a certain background, you come, and Morgan, you were talking about amount of prime ministers or people that went to the mm-hmm. same school, like there's, there's almost a blueprint you could have in place to be afforded that opportunity. But then it's almost like you cross sides, you go from maybe being in the elite class in our country, you achieve your goal, you become a politician. And then it's almost like you see the other side of it. Okay, we can, (laughs) moving back to the article, (laughs) moving back to Hobbes, whose view is dominant and is mainstream, uh, Marxist, religious, and reactionary disagreements with it to the side, we see the change in political allegiance, where loyalty to the state previously meant loyalty to the either the person or loyalty to the people. It now means loyalty or allegiance to the sovereignty inherent in the state. So the state is sovereign and you owe allegiance to it because it's sovereign. It's almost circular reasoning. Along with that, we have we redefine the crime of treason. In redefining treason, in the past, it had been defined as behaving treacherously to a sovereign lord. So acting directly against the person, not the office. And then Skinner says by the end of the 16th century, we see the shift where we're defining treason as compassing or imagining the king's death, and then it continues to shift and become more state-related and less person-specific. So the king as an entity as opposed to the current king. The crime of treason is the crime of those who act as enemies to the government. Yeah, it, it definitely, it's kind of evolving from yeah, being against the king in particular and then against what the government says and decides 
and yeah, the idea of kind of not against specific people. Skinner talks about how one outcome of distinguishing between the people in the government and the, the state itself, we also sever this connection between majesty and power and projecting it and the legitimacy of the power. And now when we see these displays of stateliness, we're just kind of shallow or hollow. When the queen comes out and, you know, gives her speech or Buckingham Palace, it does the wave, whatever it is, we realize that this is, this is all just show. This isn't meaningful in a political sense. And we look at sort of North Korean military parades and we think, oh, it's so silly. Look at them. But really, this is them in North Korea, which still follows a very personal view of government that it's, I can't remember the name of their governing philosophy. It's like the Jewish ideal embodied in the persons of the descendants of Kim Il-sung. That majesty and trapping has political power. Well, and this used to be commonplace. So the idea of displaying your power or having a show or an event to memorialize your political office. But now I think we even see, I think most teen dystopian books that you might pick up mm-hmm. or read or movies thereof, <laughs> they have this as an element of the dystopia. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's oh, always sure. some, you know, like in the Hunger Games. The capital, yeah. Right, yeah. And it's like flashy. It's amazing. Everyone's got green hair and that's part of the, the ultimate sign that. of authority. Yeah. It reminds me of the opening of Discipline and Punish by um, uh, Foucault, where he talks, he describes this execution that takes place, this very public execution. And the reason for that is to demonstrate that the king is justice. And that is another example of this, of something that's gone away. We We don't have public executions anymore. The state no longer feels the need to demonstrate its power over the justice system by holding these public displays. It now works in a much more panopticon um, method where it wants people to know that they could be watched at any time. And that's used to modify behavior rather than these displays of legitimacy. Well, and the people don't want to see it too. I agree. I think it's not needed. And then it's, yeah, ew. (laughs) (laughs) One of my one of my favorite bits of trivia is that the last guillotine execution uh, in France took place after Star Wars. Star was released. Wars, came, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, it's I didn't know that. Very late. I don't know when the last. I know um, capital, you know, capital punishment is still legal in many states, and and you can. It's not those aren't completely private because people involved in those cases can still, or at least they used to, still be able to go see it. But yeah, if they announced like we're gonna televise a public execution now that would be insane throwing it back to skinner we've officially arrived at the modern state minus the unnecessary displays of power and wealth there is something to this idea of the state trying to display its power in brutalist architecture like if you ever go to dc and you go see the fbi building it's built to be large and imposing and make you feel little. It's less the trappings of majesty and more just pure words in the name, brutalism, but just they have the power, you are nothing but a peon. So it's, I mean, these sort of psychological displays still exist, but they're not related to majesty and, and personal authority. It's now related to the relationship between the citizen and the state. Look at this giant hall of justice. You think you can fight the man, you can't which is the goal of the of a lot of brutalist architecture. And there's some other government buildings that were built in that style, that very ugly, concrete, boxy. Well, I mean, the Omaha police station is built that way, although it's much less imposing because it's much smaller and has a lot less concrete on the facade. We saw the remnants of it in Munich, too, when we were in Germany. So, like, Are you referring to the Nazi, the Nazi buildings? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, just like similar idea, like we... That style crops up when there's a group that wants to impose power. The, like you yeah. see the large, overwhelming buildings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the large, the large. Um, when you saw it also a lot in, in Eastern Europe, uh, in another, that was a very Soviet theme of architecture too, was make everything bigger. These very, very large central promenades that lead up to this giant building. It's one of the things that bankrupted Romania before they put so, that guy up against the wall. Well, because that represents wealth in a very different way. You know, land 
is expensive. So all the space yeah. and, you know, bigger buildings obviously cost more than um, smaller, you know, efficiently using your space. It's, it's just different than, you know, the idea of purple being the expensive dye to be able to get. So that was representative of wealth, you know, way back when and it's shifted. I agree. So to connect the architecture style in, I think that more enforces the idea of the abstract state. So the idea that it can exist anywhere, not necessarily, I mean, it doesn't need to have like the little eagle and the little olive branch on it for it to be the state. I remember when my, my friend who is from Saudi Arabia came to America, he was talking to me about government buildings because we were driving around Stillwater and there was a DMV or something like that. That's in a strip mall. And he was <laughs> like, why, why is your government buildings in a strip mall? Like in, cause he's from, I mean, Saudi Arabia, who's, which still has a King. So they still have the big government majestic buildings for everything. And we don't because I mean, government is omnipresent. It's, it's everywhere now, but it's also not, doesn't have to legitimize itself in that way. So it can have offices and strip malls and areas like that. And that was a concept that he thought was very odd. Yeah. Which, yeah, the idea of having a a DMV, which is such a, a much more regular part of the government that people interact with, but you know, the FBI building, most people don't have to deal with on a regular basis, but yeah, the DMV and city halls and stuff. um, When you're in smaller towns, like Stillwater and larger cities will still have slightly more imposing city halls and um, courthouses and stuff, but government buildings be so crazy large. Well, and not cute. Like the DMV is not cute. Like there was no attempt at art or I'm serious <laughs> or any type of like, you know, when there are some government buildings Lamar. that I think are beautiful that like were designed to be beautiful. They were designed to represent ideals. And then you look at our functional buildings and it's like, ew, it, that's just absent because their function and our modern state is different. We don't take that into consideration when making a functional space. And we build crap now. Yeah, that, yeah. The general idea of, um, I mean, because Fort Worth has several, um, you know, courthouses. It's a large, a large place, but there's the main one downtown that has, you know, slightly fancier architecture and stuff, but all the other ones. So what do we think of Skinner? Do we think his do we think his story about the etymology of the state of the word state and the growth of the concept of the state is a compelling one? Do we think he got it right? I do. Yes. He was thorough in the etymology, tracing it from the magistrate rule books through more modern usage, I think lines up with our idea of state today. Yeah, I mean it was really interesting to see to see how it evolved because obviously being in America, we don't, we don't learn about, I mean, maybe, you know, a couple chapters here and there in history lessons, but um, seeing how it changed and evolved from back in the, you know, 13th and 14th century to what we have today. It's very interesting. It's, it's, it's fascinating how he's able to tell the story and it makes logical sense at each step of the progression and also how ingrained the state is into our life and that concept of the state it's hard for us to imagine that for the majority of human history, that has not been the case. That is a very, the idea of the state, which is the institution that has more influence on modern life than any other is very recent. Very recent. And it, it does make sense when looking at it, how he presents it. It's easy to see. It's just not something I at least had ever thought about. Well, and viewing it, from today, like you said, looking back, it makes me wonder even how much I might have missed and some of what he said, if I couldn't, you know, put on my 13th century hat and imagine how I'd feel about my ruler back then, because it really is so ingrained in how we feel about things today. Thanks everyone for listening to the inaugural episode of Left, Right, and Unwanted. We'll be back again soon with the second episode. Tune in next time. Thank you.